Before reading the scripture, a brief word of gratitude. As always, thank you to my esteemed colleague, the Reverend Rose, for welcoming me to her pulpit and to um, this moment here at First Church where I am among the members. It is so good to be with you and to have um, the opportunity to share a word uh, of a sermon with you. A second brief word on Lent. Uh, I've noticed both for those of us in the pulpit and people in the pews over my years in ministry and in seminary, certainly before that, there are kind of two ways to journey through Lent. One reminds me of a game, or at least it became quite a serious game, my cousins uh, would insist on in Massachusetts growing up. Uh, since they were from Massachusetts, they knew about such things, we thought, you know, coming from out west, that when we passed a cemetery, we all had to hold our breath <laughs> until reaching the other side. And since they were from Massachusetts, they knew about such things. And so we would all hold our breath, even if it was a really, really long seminary, uh, seminary, cemetery. <laughs> I held my breath through seminary as well. But that's one way to go through Lent. It's, a, it's something to get through, get over. We look forward to the, the words of praise coming back. And Easter, these are all wonderful things to look forward to. The other way of journeying through Lent is one that can be modeled by um, the Iona Abbey. I know that Vanessa has been to Iona. Some of the rest of you may as well. It's in Scotland. It's a place that's an ecumenical uh, church that draws pilgrims from around the world. Um, a man named George MacLeod founded the modern abbey in the beginning of the 20th century as a place for people to come and deepen their theologies um, and to find God. Because he thought that that space on the islands of Scotland was a thin place. Some of you may have heard this term, a thin place. It's a place where the separation between heaven and earth is very liminal, very delicate. That's the other way to journey through Lent, sort of a slow dance with mystery. And so I invite us today to think about this latter part, not just something to hold our breath past a seminary or a cemetery, <laughs> but also to dance with the divine mystery of life. Our Psalm 121, if you were at the Iona Abbey this morning, is probably what they would be reading as well from our lectionary. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where will my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper, the Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil, and he will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time on and forevermore. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God, in this place. And for me, it brings up a very, very distinct image in my mind and memory. I remember the first time I saw someone die. I was only 21 years old and was a hospice chaplaincy intern. The gentleman had a worn, open book on his lap. It was the same book that had traveled with him his whole life. And through the life of his parents and grandparents before him, he had his family Bible on his lap. We were somewhere in a partially abandoned farmhouse in Tama, Marshall, or maybe it was Powasheet County, Iowa. I guess it doesn't really matter which one. Family came and went. 
Neighbors stopped by to pay what they called their respects. Do you notice we only pay respects for one thing? We use that phrase only in times of dying. What matters, though, is that laying across his lap was an open family Bible. As his breathing rattled in and out, transitioning from life to death to life and back into death. I was told later that this gentleman had actually been a carpenter locally most of his life, and he actually had built, the last thing he made with those same hands that rested on that Bible, he had actually built his own urn of wood for his ashes that would be at his funeral and internment. But one thing I remember very clearly was the Bible that was open was open to Psalm 121. And as the day went on, this vigil, different people, friends, neighbors, family would come and be invited to read this text again aloud. It was a vigil of repetition, solo voices cycling through the room, reading Psalm 121, his favorite psalm. I would soon learn as ministry progressed that this psalm would haunt me or accompany me, depending on how you think of it, at bedsides and gravesides as my career as clergy has evolved. And it comes to us here in Lent at a time when we contemplate deep meaning of life and death and purpose. It is fitting and right for us today to study this passage so connected with the ministry of hospice. It is also part of what I remember in my ministry of that hospice internship, hospitals and pastoral care around death always accompanied by Psalm 121. This has taught me two really, really important lessons for church that I hope to relay to you in this sermon today. First is that as church, as community that calls itself church and congregation, we are called to talk about these things, to talk about the big things, life and death. We're here for each other in congregation in the scary times, not just the fun, even though the hoedown sounds like it was really great, or the political, which is often something that UCC churches we spend a lot of time on. But our core purpose is to be with each other in the life events and stages, including death. The second thing of Psalm 121 is it's taught me over the years is to re-understand the word hope. Where does my hope come from? Differently. Life isn't a hope to escape death but it is a journey to seeing God in all of it. Life, death, and the things in between, the experiences. Now, scholars tell us that Psalm 121 is a psalm for the journey. I love this, a psalm for the journey. It is a dialogue conversation between a pilgrim uh, on the road and a passing priest on the road to Jerusalem. Many of the psalms, if you go through the book of Psalms, uh, you kind of, kind of think of it like as if you took the hymnal out of the pew and just read through it as if it were poetry, but really they all had music to go with them originally. But a lot of the psalms, if you go through them, are very, very loud. Uh, they sound like communal anthems or songs to be sung in a group. But this psalm, this psalm is more of a taze solo. It is a deep and introspective psalm. This psalm is one about looking up to the hills or out onto the vastness of Long Island Sound in wonder to get a bigger picture of life. 
Patrick D. Miller was a Charles Haley professor at the Princeton Theological Seminary of Theology, and he writes about the Psalms in this one in particular. The Psalms, as it's often called, is a collection of prayers and songs composed throughout Israel's history. Its title, Psalm, is derived from the Greek word meaning song. The Hebrew book, however, is Telahim, which means more specifically, hymns or songs of praise. The poetic character of the Psalms is manifest in the balance and the symmetry. Important, the balance and the symmetry, life and death of each line. The Psalms, friends, are the part of the Bible where the details and how they pop out at us really, really matter. It's the details of existence and community. They reawaken us to the attention we can find in words and help us get out of our heads and back into our hearts. For life is short, and we don't have much time to gladden the hearts of those who travel the way with us. This is also what Lent is intended to do. It should get us out of our heads and the daily and into our hearts and the eternal. To claim the Psalms as our own is to claim and reclaim the power of language from those who wish to take it away from us. We reclaim the poetry of life. So now let's look at the first couple of verses. I think they tell us a lot about the intention of this psalm. And we miss some really important things. The first one is this. And put it from our, our modern context, we miss something. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Now, my sister just got back from a three-month hike. And she camped along the way, hiking what's called the Israel National Trail. From the north all the way down to the Sinai. It's a spiritual journey she did. And I asked her, Jamie, if you walk without looking at the roads in Israel, what happens? She says, well, you fall down. <laughs> so what ha- what's ha- this is not a modern sidewalk, although you probably should also watch your step on a sidewalk. But this is, this is a time when if you looked up from the ground, you would need to stand still. You'd need to pause for a moment. You'd need to take things in. Lifting up your eyes to the hills means stopping in your tracks to look for something bigger. It continues, from where will my help come? The word my help in Hebrew is ezer, meaning specifically my aid or my balm in a time of great difficulty. So it's my big help, not just a little help. And then there's a reply. This is the dialogue part. I love it. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth, who made life and is here with us in death. Now, I was talking with Vanessa about this between the services. I call it the intermission here uh, at First Church, um, about the use of, of Google in sermon writing. Now, it's not a replacement for the theologians. Remember, we've already cited the Princeton scholars and the rest. But it does give us a sense of what's happening popularly out there with the use of Scripture. What are, how are people interpreting these texts? How are they received generally in our world? How are they living and breathing in the lives of real people, not just theologians at Princeton and Yale, although they're great too? It isn't just a Lent psalm to help us about words, but something deep is happening here. So if you Google um, this psalm, Psalm 121, here is what comes up. Ten passages to read with someone who is near death. Thirty-five compassionate, 
hospice Bible verses, hospice Bible verses, to bring you peace and comfort for cancer patients. Biblical verses for comfort for the dying and walking with people through palliative care and hospice care. Interesting. So going back to that first time I saw someone die working for hospice, it was after my junior year and I'd spent a full year abroad in France and I got back to Grinnell, Iowa and I went to the registrar to register for my last year of classes and she said, oh, you have enough credits to graduate a semester early. Now, I went back to the chaplain for whom I worked and I'd already accepted a, a place at an MDiv at Emory in the fall. I said, Deanna, Chaplain Deanna, what do I do with an extra semester before walking with my class? And between that day and the next day, I went home and Googled all kinds of things like temporary jobs and Key West and wonderful, fun things to do. (laughs) She had conspired with the chaplain at the local hospice and already found me a grant to keep me in rural Iowa on the coldest winter on record (laughs) to help be an unseminary-trained hospice chaplain for a four-county area covering the size of Rhode Island. (laughs) Iowa has 99 counties, by the way. I would witness many deaths that spring and winter. I lost count how many. I would hold the hands of loved ones and the dying sometimes at the same time. A couple of years later, as a chaplain through CPE at Emory, I would do the same in the ER and hallways of Clifton Emory Hospital in Atlanta. And after that, even more liminal and sacred was walking with congregations that called me pastor. As a minister in Colorado and Connecticut, accompanying members, some of whom had been my own mentors and their friends as they passed away and died. The most sacred part of any minister's job is that accompanying journey in congregation and family of Christ. This Psalm 121 that lay on the lap of the first person I saw die has been with me at every one of those countless deaths. And I carry it with me ever since. Recently, we all received news that former President Jimmy Carter entered hospice. You all have heard of this, right? And I realized something quite wild about it, that this good and kind man, whether you like his policies or not, you can, we can all agree Jimmy Carter is a pretty nice person. He lived by example his whole life. He made Habitat for Humanity and this obscure idea from Georgia of the theology of the hammer into a household name. Anyone not hear of Habitat? Right. And who loves so deeply. Jimmy Carter is giving this whole country one more Sunday school lesson. How to die beautifully and to know what hospice is. And Psalm 121 came to mind. You see, if you think about it, big and famous and powerful people don't let us know they're entering hospice. We think of Queen Elizabeth, Betty White, Ronald Reagan... Herbert Walker Bush, and others with whom we know about power and fame, we don't know that they're dying. They just kind of fade from public view and their PR agents make big excuses, need more family time, not feeling too well. And then all of a sudden, they're just gone. We don't hear about their hospice journeys or palliative care. We just picture them suddenly going from full vitality to death. And this is a grave illusion and disservice. 
They want to be remembered only at their strongest and most superhuman for posterity. Most great and powerful people like former presidents want to be remembered for their power, not their humanity, not their mortality, not their journeying with us. By God, I thought to myself, Jimmy Carter is even teaching us how to die well in the role of hospice in life. We're getting one more Sunday school lesson from former President Jimmy Carter, and it's on the message of hospice philosophy and dying. He's doing death publicly to teach everyone a lesson like he did in life with Habitat for Humanity and other causes, teaching a Sunday school lesson about walking through hospice. Connecticut, you may know or not know, is deeply ingrained in this hospice story. We're so used to this idea of hospice, we forget it's only been in North America since 1974. Originating as a holistic approach to interdisciplinary spiritual and physical care in the United Kingdom, it was brought first to North America to a place called Branford and Connecticut for America's first hospice. It is still there to this very day on the shores of Short Beach in Branford, overlooking the Thimble Islands and some rock cliffs. When I was the associate minister in, uh, in Guilford, my boss and my friend, the Reverend Dr. Ginger Brasher Cunningham, who has a very thick Alabama accent, and I can't do her accent, she would tell me, because she loved going there to visit folks, she said, when it comes time for me to die, get me to Branford ASAP. And I think she means it, reflecting on the care she's witnessed in that place. Connecticut Hospice is America's first hospice. It was founded by Florence Wald and a group of nurses and doctors and clergy in 1974 who saw what was happening as the medical system got a hold of those who were terminally ill rather than letting them die in peace and dignity. A few years prior, Wald was then an associate professor at Yale in mental health and psychiatric nursing and was inspired by the stories of what was happening across the seas at a place called St. Christopher's Hospice, on this new movement and way of thinking focused on families and people with terminal illnesses and patients themselves. It was revolutionary at the time. And this is one thing that she said, this, um, this um, Professor Wald who founded Connecticut Hospice. She says, in those days before 1974, patients went through hell and the family was never involved. She sought to change that by founding a hospice program founded here on the principles of connecting people with compassionate interdisciplinary care and their families with bereavement services. Another example of how Connecticut changed the world. You all know I love Connecticut. <laughs> but this sermon isn't meant to be a fundraising sermon for Connecticut hospice. There are many good hospices here in Connecticut, but it is about helping us understand what we're walking through. I remember the first time I saw someone die, and I would not call it beautiful. It was a troubled, long, and agonizing goodbye. But through all of it there on his lap was Psalm 100, and the voices of friends and family cycling through the room, reading these words. Even though he was no longer able to wake up or speak or open his eyes, we believe in hospice that the last faculty to go is hearing. hearing. That maybe he's hearing these voices of family and ones reading his favorite text, this text of comfort again.
And this Bible stayed on his lap up until the moment the undertakers came to take him away to his wooden box. The hope of hospice in Psalm 121 isn't to avoid death and the realm of tomorrows. It is unavoidable for all of us. But it is to find a transition with as much comfort and hope and community church as possible. Hope in hospice isn't about avoiding difficult realities of existence, but it's about facing them differently than how society has programmed us to approach these things. It's not about holding our breath all the way past the cemetery. It's about learning to breathe deeply in those liminal thin spaces. Hope in a time of hospice requires Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the hills and I stand still. The help referenced in this passage isn't to say that it won't be hard, but we seek help to live real and full lives, that somehow by the grace of God, our lives will be about more than just, and I've said this before, collecting junk for the estate sales of future generations. Something I've learned in churches in New England we are very, very good at. And titles and power. And then we can look to the hills in community. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth, who made life and is with us in death, who made day and night, who made the psalm-like symmetry. Remember the symmetry of it all. This isn't a promise, Psalm 121, misread often, to save us from death. But it is a moment of pause in the chaos of the psalms, a quiet, meditative, and personal solo of someone who has found the help that transcends life and death, the journey of the two unified in the symmetry of grace. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where will my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. The Lord will keep you going out passing away, and your coming in, your renewal and your birth, from this time on and forevermore. Amen.